You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet, and we're back to the topic of virtual currency and its role in the national security or encountering the national security. Tonight, we're going to pivot from discussions of criminal cases like Silk Road to how nation states have used cryptocurrencies to their advantage. My guest tonight is Sujit Raman, the former Associate Deputy Attorney General and Chief Legal Officer now of TRM Labs. And that is a business that conducts analysis of blockchain and Web3 intelligence to help organizations detect, assess, and investigate crypto-related fraud and financial crime. I'm going to guess he's a busy man. Sujit, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. All right, let's get right to it. This stuff, I think in the eye of the public, is sort of dangerous. They look at ransomware gangs. North Korea has made billions of dollars through cyber crimes. I'm sure we're going to get into some more details here in which they've demanded and received cryptocurrencies. And as of last week, the BBC has reported that North Korea no longer needs embassies, a lot of them, to boost Pyongyang's economy because it's filled its coffers with money from virtual currency transfers almost exclusively from criminal activities. So let's set out some basics for our listeners. Can you briefly explain how cryptocurrencies work, how one transfers a cryptocurrency to a fiat currency? I'd be happy to, Elisa. And, you know, if possible, I'd like to take maybe a step back and start with the concept of virtual currencies. Now, a virtual currency is a digital representation of value that, like traditional currency, functions as a medium of exchange. Now, unlike traditional or fiat currency, virtual currency does not have legal tender status in any particular country, minor exception of El Salvador, but that's the general principle. Instead, the exchange value of a particular virtual currency is generally based on agreement or trust among the community of users. Now, cryptocurrency refers to a specific type of virtual currency with certain key characteristics. The vast majority of cryptocurrencies are decentralized because they lack a central administrator to issue the currency and maintain payment ledgers. So in other words, there's no central bank. Instead, cryptocurrencies rely on complex algorithms, a distributed ledger that is often referred to as the blockchain, and a network of peer-to-peer users to maintain an accurate system of payments and receipts. As their name suggests, cryptocurrencies rely on cryptography to maintain security. And so some examples of prominent cryptocurrencies that your listeners are probably aware of, Bitcoin, Ether, etc. Now you asked, how do you convert crypto into fiat currency, into sort of tangible real currency? Well, that typically occurs on a cryptocurrency exchange. So you can go to the website of a company like Coinbase or Kraken or Binance and basically purchase crypto in exchange for dollars or vice versa. At reputable exchanges, you will have to provide KYC information, driver's license or a passport, link your bank account, and so on. At less reputable exchanges, those know-your-customer processes are often ignored, which creates a significant potential risk. And I'm sure that's something we can talk about as we go forward. Okay, excellent. And let's just expand on that. You mentioned two, I think, more favored virtual currencies, that being Bitcoin and Ether, and they are a public blockchain, one visible to the eye in terms of the transactions, maybe not the specific parties. 
But there are increasingly a number of digital currencies that are not public. Their blockchain is not public, known as enhanced anonymity cryptocurrencies. Truth be told, these things can be exchanged for the more reputable currencies, such as Bitcoin, Ether, the ones that you mentioned KYC. And to be clear to our listeners, what you refer to there is Know Your Customer Bank Secrecy Act laws that require U.S. banks or banks doing business in the U.S. to follow certain rules. So they're not just laundering assets. But there are also things called mixers and tumblers, rather, that allow individuals to switch these sort of public blockchain currencies, Bitcoin, Ether, for things that are known as enhanced anonymity cryptocurrencies. Can you talk a little bit about the lawless fear that that could be one? And two, where are these mixers and tumblers and where are the exchanges? I am not imagining a bank down the street. Where are these things? Yeah, well, starting with the question about anonymity enhanced cryptocurrencies or privacy coins, which is another way that they're often referred to. Uh, Monero is one that you mentioned, Elisa, which is also pretty prominent in the, in the public discourse. These are coins that, as you mentioned, are ways for users to try to obfuscate their identity in a way that using Bitcoin or Ether is not. So blockchain intelligence companies like my company can pretty easily trace payments on the Bitcoin network or payments on the Ethereum network. Or if you move funds from Bitcoin to Ethereum across a bridge or some other way, that is something we can also trace. Because as I mentioned at the outset, these transactions are occurring on publicly available distributed ledgers, right? They can be seen in the public, as you mentioned. Privacy coins create an interesting wrinkle because they are harder to trace. Uh, what I would say is there was public reporting suggesting that illicit actors are trying to use privacy coins to launder money or to engage in drug trafficking or, or, or that kind of thing. There are people who say that privacy coins do have legitimate uses, whether it's financial privacy uses, because as I mentioned, on permissionless blockchains, the transactions are public. If you don't want the whole world to know that you move Bitcoin from point A to point B, or if you're a political activist in Russia or in another authoritarian regime, and you want to try to cover up your tracks so that the authorities can't come after you, that is one category of uses that at least people say that privacy coins have. Now, that said, I think there is also very clearly a concern, a risk, right? The U.S. government has certainly stated publicly that it associates the use of certain privacy coins with illicit activity. Now, that is an ongoing policy debate. You know, I think many people feel like privacy and particularly financial privacy is a very important concept and one that particularly in the crypto world needs to be maintained. On the other hand, there is no doubt that illicit actors are using these types of coins as well as everyday cash, right? I mean, it isn't just crypto. I mean, people still use ordinary bank accounts or ordinary cash to engage in illicit activity. But one concern is that these privacy coins, because they are harder to essentially trace and pull apart to figure out who's behind the transactions, that that can promote illicit activity. So that is an ongoing policy debate. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how those debates play out in the coming months and years. But these exchanges and mixers and tumblers, they're not all onshore, right? I mean, they can be in places where known for illicit crypto activity like Romania, beyond the reach of the USG. That's absolutely right. Essentially, mixing is code, right? So there are centralized mixers, and those are entities that are set up like any other entity, and they have identifiable persons who work behind them, behind the scenes, essentially helping mix the currency. You know, the way I've heard it described, and I thought it was a very good description, 
imagine you've got a whole bunch of $1 bills and you put them onto the table and you mix them up and then you grab the money that you put in and take it out. The $1 bill that you put in is not necessarily the one that you took out, right? But it's still a, an equal transaction. That's essentially how mixers work. You have crypto coming in, the mixing happens through essentially computer code, and then the same amount of money is ejected out into different wallets, and that's one way of trying to obfuscate the transaction. Now, that can happen in the United States. It can happen outside the United States. Centralized mixers are ones where, as I mentioned, there are actual identifiable people running the enterprise, and they often take a fee, and they custody your, your funds. Decentralized mixers, and we're getting very wonky very quickly, but I, I love it. Decentralized mixers are essentially smart contracts. So it's code that once you sort of put the money in, it's self-executing, and there isn't necessarily anybody taking custody of the funds or actually running the enterprise. And Elisa, you've actually got right into one of the very interesting policy debates that's going on right now. The U.S. Treasury, the OFAC, Office of Foreign Asset Control, has begun sanctioning certain mixers. It sanctioned a centralized mixer called Blender.io earlier in 2023. And then after that, because you know the North Korean government was using these mixers to essentially launder billions of dollars of stolen funds. After that, Treasury sanctioned what's called Tornado Cash, which was a decentralized mixer based on the Ethereum blockchain. We have these very interesting questions now about how does computer code interact with illicit activity? How does centralized activity interact with illegal activity? How does decentralized activity interact with illicit activity? There are First Amendment questions. This has actually been litigated because the Tornado Cash issue raised a bunch of questions here in the United States about whether or not Treasury could sanction computer code, essentially. That litigation has been proceeding through the federal courts, and ultimately OFAC's action was upheld. So you're raising very interesting questions about how technology and national security intersect in this area of rapid change. I, I would agree with you that a lot of this activity is happening outside of the United States. And candidly, that's one reason why I think the U.S. government needs to be a little bit more proactive when it comes to creating regulatory structures around crypto so that we don't drive all this activity outside the U.S. where we don't have visibility into it. You know, as, as you know, I spent so much of my career in the U.S. government as a national security official. And that's what attracted me to this industry was we are creating the guardrails and the values now, almost like the early days of the internet, which you know the US government and American values and, and allied values, I don't want to just say the US, have helped define. It's not perfect. The internet has all sorts of problems, but we've created the value structure around the internet that I think has ultimately been a net positive for the world. The hope is that when we're talking about crypto, it's similarly US and allied values that are helping inform the standards around which crypto and all the technical infrastructure and the digital infrastructure is created. Because if not, there are other parts of the world where this technology is at the very forefront. I mean, the Chinese government has not been you know, shy about this. For them, a central bank digital currency is an integral part of the Belt and Road Initiative and in trying to export Chinese values and Chinese financial prowess outside of their borders. That's something we here in the United States need to be conscious of, and we need to be very active in trying to address it, which is why I think all the issues we're talking about today are so critically important. I want to circle back to something that you said at the beginning and think about it topographically again as code. It's different from a lot of things. It's also similar, would you agree, to a lot of things. We have for years had to deal with this concept of hawala, 
there may be some listeners who don't understand is just an equalizing system, financial system, wherein I'll use an example. If you're a member of a particular clan in a particular country and you need money, basically in an hour you can have it because somebody puts money on the books elsewhere or equalizes with a family member. And this has been a tradition that has existed for thousands of years. So that is based on a trust system without a digital footprint, really of any kind, at least nothing meaningfully. One other point you mentioned, you know, sort of acute anonymity of this, depending on the currency and sort of the international transmission, if you will, of funds. But the Supreme Court has said that you don't have a right to privacy in financial transactions as such. At some point, we would be asking justices, perhaps, to pass on something that is technologically somewhat advanced and may not be within the ken of every single brilliant jurist everywhere. Do you have any concerns that we have legislatures, a, a judicial branch that may not function at an understanding level about this new technology that someone like yourself is functioning? Do you have some concerns sort of generally like this is meta, 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 high level? What do we do with judges who don't understand this and legislatures? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a very fair question, Elisa. I, I guess I would offer a couple of thoughts. The first is, anytime it comes to technology, I think there are legitimate concerns about how the courts, which are not specialized in technology, you know, many of our federal judges are often well into their, you know, elder years, which is not a commentary on age. You know, I think some of our most wise folks have been on the bench for, for decades. But you're absolutely right that often it's harder to comprehend the technological issues. And then you often end up, you know, relying on your law clerks or on your own internet research, which starts getting very dangerous very quickly. But I think those are, you know, issues that we confront across the range, right? It's not just cryptocurrencies. It's not even just technology. There are so many concepts out there where the federal courts or, or state and local courts have to opine where they don't necessarily have the expertise. And so in some ways, I think that's a broader question about how we sort of deal with you know, litigation in the United States, right? There are other models in Europe. There's other ways for judges to get access to information where they can appoint special masters to look at particular issues and offer recommendations. We don't really have that system here in the US. I will say, you know, these crypto issues have started winding their way through the courts. And these opinions that we're seeing coming out of the Southern District of New York, some of the opinions that are coming out of the Fifth Circuit, they are nuanced. Uh, and I will say that I think folks who are in the industry who follow these lawsuits and read these very detailed opinions, whether it's the Terraform decision that came out, uh, you know, the SEC has been very active as a plaintiff, as you know. And so that's created a lot of litigation in the federal courts. I find these judicial opinions to be very well thought out. You know, sometimes I agree with them. Sometimes I don't, I don't agree with them. But in terms of actually dealing with these issues, I've been very actually impressed with a number of these judicial opinions. So I do think that in some ways, it's unfortunate that the courts are where a lot of these issues are being resolved. I think, candidly, this really is an issue where the legislature and Congress needs to step forward and really take a leading edge. We haven't seen a lot of crypto-related legislation coming out of the Congress, although there have been a number of hearings. The House Financial Services Committee is known for being quite thoughtful on these issues in a bipartisan way. The banking committees, the judiciary committees less so. And then, you know, the intelligence committees and the national security related committees. So I think there was a lot of interest on the Hill among members, among staff to get educated on these issues. And certainly those of us in the industry who are knowledgeable on these issues are trying to do our part to contribute to that. But again, we don't have a framework here in the United States and we are really falling behind. You look at Singapore, you look at 
United Arab Emirates, you look at, you know, other parts of the world, certainly Europe has now a basically a comprehensive, uh, they call it the Mika proposal. So there are other parts of the world that are being quite proactive when it comes to digital asset frameworks and digital asset regulation. Again, my concern is that here in the United States, we're falling behind. Okay. Well, before we get into the specifics of sort of the national security stuff that you're seeing through your work at TRM, let's back up for a minute. At this point, one should understand, though, clearly that digital assets, unless they're held in a financial institution that's FDIC insured, are easily or could be easily lost. Do you want to talk about that level of risk? And then I'd also ask you, maybe in the context of that response, to explain to listeners who might not be familiar what the difference is between these closed loop digital assets that have been proposed by a number of financial institutions and sort of the free market of digital assets that's out there, just so that people who don't understand the distinction between the two can get a sense of what appetite for risk investors, even institutional investors who may dabble in this stuff, kind of need to understand where the potentially catastrophic loss we've seen in a couple of failed crypto companies. Why don't you talk just briefly about that so people understand the risk element? Sure. And let me offer a couple of thoughts about not only crypto, but blockchains in general. Because I think what's so revolutionary and potentially transformative about this technology Alisa, it certainly comes with a, a set of risks, and, and we should talk about those. And you know, my company is very much focused on the illicit use of crypto because that's those are the risks that we help identify for the public sector as well as the private sector. But I think it is important to also talk about how potentially transformative this technology really is. There are certain, I would say, characteristics or kind of inherent properties of public blockchains that are worth talking about and distinguishes them from our traditional financial system. Blockchains are transparent, which means every transaction is visible on the blockchain. It's something you can see on your computer. You know, if you're talking about corruption, for example, that transparency is very helpful, right? It's important to be able to see that if you're dealing with a government and you're sending money from point A to point B, that that money actually was transferred and that it was transferred in the right amount and it was transferred at the right time. All of that is recorded on a public blockchain in a way that in our traditional financial system is typically obscured. It's traceable, right? So when money moves from point A, from crypto wallet A to crypto wallet B, you can trace it. And that is fundamentally distinguishable from our traditional system. You know, there was a, a very prominent hack uh, several years ago, the Mt. Gox hack, and your listeners can certainly look it up, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that were stolen. And the U.S. government affected the largest seizure in history, because <laughs> that crypto was now worth several billion dollars a couple of years ago. Now, that is impossible with the traditional kind of fiat cash currency system, right? Once the money's gone, it's gone. But with crypto, you can see the money sitting in these wallets. And the perpetrators were very patient. This is money that was parked for, I think, five, six, seven years before it started to move. And thanks to analytic tools, that have now developed, including tools created by companies like mine, the US government was able to see when that money started to move. And then they were able to approach the relevant exchange and essentially seize those funds. And that resulted, as I mentioned, literally in the largest seizure in US government history. Now, that kind of seizure is impossible in the traditional cash economy. So I think it's very important to keep in mind what are some of the virtues of this technology. It's permanent. You know, again, talking about corruption issues or other kinds of questions about auditability or 
how accurate records are. With the blockchain, records are 100% accurate and they can't be fudged, right? It's hard-coded, it's cryptographically encoded onto a blockchain, which can't be manipulated. Fundamentally different from bank records or business records or other types, you know, as, as prosecutors, people know, often half the job is trying to make sure that the records you have are accurate <laughs> when you're trying to build a case. That is not an issue when it comes to blockchains. And they're programmable, right? And this is why I really talk about, you know, what, what drew me into this industry. You think about the internet of money, and it's almost obvious that as society expands, as internet connectivity expands around the world, including through the developing world, it seems almost an obvious idea that we should be transacting at the speed of the internet. And that's not the world we live in today, right? There are so many intermediaries that are there to extract fees, to take a cut. Uh, you know, if you're trying to transfer money from the United States to relatives in Indonesia or in India or in Australia, wherever it is across the world, it takes days and it costs you a significant percentage of that, of that wire transfer. It's inconceivable to me, and I think for many folks who are in the industry, that in this day and age, you don't have the instantaneous transfer of money without a whole bunch of you know, friction associated with it. So like if you use a Western Union or a MoneyGram, they charge a very high fee. They do. Okay. And under the bank secrecy laws and general banking regarding ACH transfers, which are also electronic, there has traditionally under the law been a three-day reconciliation period, which is sometimes okay, but sometimes people have to have money for whatever reason. If they're in Indonesia and they're having emergency medical services and perhaps or any other country where there are not social services or perhaps the structure we have here, a three-day reconciliation period can be seriously problematic, I think is what you're alluding to. And that was great before we were living in a real digital universe. Yeah, absolutely. It's very helpful. And you know, if you're an immigrant worker and you're trying to send money home, you don't want to have a, a bunch of rent seekers taking a cut of that money, number one. And number two, to your point, at least, if you're trying to get that money back to your relatives in another part of the world who might be dealing with inflation or might be dealing with other issues out of their control, you want to be able to make that transfer as quickly as possible. And that's what the internet of money makes possible. Now, look, it comes also with a whole set of risks, which is, again, why you know I'm at a company which is in the business of trying to monitor that risk and try to identify that risk and mitigate that risk. But I think that's what's motivating a lot of what we're talking about today. You know, people say, well, why do people care about crypto? It seems like it's inherently dangerous or inherently, you know, full of risk. I think philosophically, a lot of folks are unhappy with the status quo, with how our financial system, our global financial system has developed over time. And so when you combine the internet and computing power with finance, that's what we're starting to see happening in the world today. So as I mentioned, Elisa, there are a number of properties of blockchains that actually make them far more effective, far more efficient, far safer. You know, we haven't even talked about privacy yet. Our standard modus operandi today is we hand over a whole bunch of personal data to third parties like banks or, you know, whoever else. And all that information is sitting, you know, in a database somewhere just waiting to be hacked. That's the world we live in today. With blockchains, in many ways, blockchains are more privacy protective than the current world we have today. Because why? You have a public key which is open to everyone, and you have a private key, which is your kind of personal encryption code. If you can use blockchains to essentially encode information so that only folks who have access to the private key can access that information, it's goodbye to hackers, right? Hackers, unless they hack the private key, which is something we can talk about as we go forward, that's a cybersecurity issue. Unless, you know, the only people who have access to that information will be people who have, who have your private key. 
which is fundamentally safer than the world we live in today, where all this PII, again, is just sitting in private databases waiting to be hacked. And of course, there's a whole world out there of hackers who are making billions of dollars by stealing people's personal information. So I, I do want to be clear with our listeners at the very outset that this technology, this distributed ledger technology, this way of organizing information in a decentralized way across computers that span the globe is in many ways completely revolutionary when it comes to the organization of information. But again, with that comes certain you know, new sets of risks. And that's what I think we're all trying to, to get our hands around. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.